So I have a challenge for you. And the challenge is this, whether you're at home or in the room here this morning, the challenge is every day, beginning today, between now and Christmas morning, I want to challenge you to read one chapter of the Gospel of John. I read chapter one this morning. Brian was speaking to us from it earlier when we shared communion. Rich truths in there. But if you read one chapter of the Gospel of John every day between now and do the final chapter, chapter 21 on December, on December 25th, when you wake up Christmas morning and read that chapter, you will be reminded who and what Christmas is all about. I invite you to do it. Let's pray. Father, as we consider your word now, we thank you so much for it. We thank you that in no way do we have to just flounder around in life hoping for the best, wondering what to do, wondering if I should turn left or right. But you have revealed yourself quite specifically, even though there's still some mystery, but quite specifically, you have revealed yourself to us. You've revealed your heart for us. You've revealed your purpose for us, your plan for us. And so, Father, as we talk about the things we're going to talk about that are just clearly laid out in your word today, we invite you to speak to us in very personal terms. We would be available to that end, and we pray that you'll be exalted in all that we say and we do. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. When you think about the life of Moses, you think about a life of obedience, you think about a life of reluctance, you think about a life that at times was marked by rebellion, a life of incredible, tremendous faith, a life of rage in moments, a life of acknowledging the holiness of God, The scripture describes him as one of the heroes of the faith. And this is undoubtedly true. The book of Deuteronomy says that in all of the history of Israel, there has never been a prophet like Moses. So how do you fill the shoes of Moses? How do you replace a guy like Moses? You have your Bible or your device, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the fourth book of the Bible, the book of Numbers, chapter 27. Numbers chapter 27, beginning in verse 12. And as you're turning, I just remind you that we've been in this big series, When God Leads the Way. Today is the last in this series. We did 17 messages over the course of this year, eight in the fall, nine in the spring. And we've been talking about the story of God fulfilling his promise to remove his people from more than 400 years of slavery in the land of Egypt and to supernaturally remove them from slavery because Egypt was the superpower of the world at that time. And God showed them in the clearest of terms who God really is. Not all the false gods they were predominantly worshiping, including Pharaoh. And we've gone with the children of Israel on this journey towards the promised land. 
And we've been kind of in some senses looking at it in a parallel way to the journey that we're on in these last 20 months or so as the world has changed in a way that in our lifetime we haven't seen. And we've been saying, what are some of the things that went on in the children of Israel's life that we can learn from? And what are some of the things God has for us in the midst of this journey? Numbers chapter 27 beginning in verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, go up this mountain in the Abraham range and see the land I have given the Israelites. After you have seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. You're going to die, Moses. For when the community rebelled at the waters of the desert of Zin, both of you disobeyed my command to honor me as holy before their eyes. These were the waters of Mirabah Kadesh in the desert of Zin. Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and to come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eleazar the priest and the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority so that the whole Israelite community will obey him. He is to stand before Eleazar the priest who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. At his command, he and the entire community of the Israelites will go out, and at his command, they will come in. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and had him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole assembly, and then he laid his hand on him and commissioned him as the Lord had instructed him through Moses. Moses has waited his whole life to enter the promised land. And now he is to be denied. And we talked about this last week. We talked about the circumstances at Mirabah. The people were clamoring for water. This is the new generation of Israel. They're clamoring for water. They've heard the stories over and over and over again, night after night, of the provision of God, of God miraculously in an unprecedented way, bringing them out of Egypt, all the miracles, the parting of the Red Sea, providing for them in the wilderness by giving water on a previous occasion out of a rock, giving manna for two to three million people, two to two and a half million, I should say, uh, giving quail for them to eat, and just providing like massive amounts of supplies to meet their needs. They've heard these stories, but once again, there's a shortage of water. And they begin to complain and murmur against Moses and against God. And maybe it was the last straw for Moses after of all the years in the wilderness. He could see the new generation of Israelites are following in the same path as their parents, the generation that he had originally led out of Egypt. The parents have all died off now because of their sin, but they had taught their children when trouble comes, the first thing you should do is murmur and grumble and complain against life, 
against the leader and against God. And Moses had seen the previous generation lose their opportunity to go into the promised land because of this besetting sin that occurred in their life over and over again. And now he sees it manifesting in the new generation because they learned from their parents. Let me just pause for a second and just remind you of one of the key questions from last week. Mom and dad, grandpa and grandma, aunt and uncle, what are you passing on to the next generation? Not just what you're saying, but what do they see you do? They make their own choices, I get it. But what are they learning from you? And so Moses, in a fit of rage, as the leader with every eye on him in a public way, publicly publicly sort of tarnishes God's glory, shows, it says in the text, a measure of unbelief, a lack of trust. He's he's saying, well, God, you're you're not going to take care of the sin of these people once again, so I'm going to have to do it. He shows a lack of trust in God, and he makes it somehow publicly in front of everyone like it's somehow okay to be disobedient. And we know from Scripture it is a grievous error, it is a grievous sin to disobey God. And ironically, in the moment he lashes out at them and calls them all rebels, he's being a rebel himself. And God says, because of this, Moses, because you have not shown me to be holy before the people, because you've done these other things, you will not allow, be allowed to enter the promised land. And I can't help but imagine that there was some tears in the eyes of Moses as he recognizes the gravity of the choices he's made and the situation he's put himself in. Later, you can read in Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, in chapter three, that he actually pleads with God subsequently to be allowed to go into the promised land. And God says, no, you're forgiven. But there are consequences that attach when we make choices. So you're forgiven, but you're not going in enough of that. And so Moses stops talking about it. In our text in chapter 27 of Numbers, even though all of this stuff comes up again in Moses' life, he's reminded of all of these things. You're going to notice in the text that he's heard God in Deuteronomy chapter 3, and he doesn't bring it up again. He doesn't dwell on it because of his love for God, his respect for God. And he quickly realizes that a healthy transition is needed. And so he shifts his focus to God's plan and Israel's need for a replacement leader. And this is undoubtedly one of the stellar moments in his life. It's one of those moments why he's viewed as a hero of the faith, as the greatest prophet that Israel had known. Let me just ask you this. When our time comes, And it's going to come for me. It's going to come for you. It's going to come for all of us. When our time comes, what will be said of us when our time comes? What will be said of us? And in the text, as you're reading through it, you see that he keeps the focus off himself. He keeps the focus on what God has called him to do. 
And friends, this takes courage. This takes a selfless faith. And it shows us some of the qualities of what it takes to be a real leader. And so chapter 27 tells us who the new leader will be. It will be Joshua, son of Nun. And it gives us insights to help us when we seek new letters, leaders rather, in whatever place we find ourselves in life. And when the time comes to turn over our position for others to fill. So who was qualified? Well, the, the two that immediately come to mind is the two spies that went into the land. Twelve spies went into the land, if you know that story, to scope out the land. They come back, ten of them say, we shouldn't go in. We can't trust God. These people in there are too tough for us. The circumstances are too onerous. We can't do it. And two of the twelve say, we can do it. God has promised us we can do it. Look at all that God has already done. We can do it. Let's go in. And so Caleb and Joshua are those two people that don't die out in the 40 years. And they are standing on the edge and the precipice of the promised lands. And they're saying as well, let us press on in the strength of the Lord. Additionally, Joshua becomes sort of like the attendant of Moses, and he's sort of mentored by Moses into the role. And uh, it would appear, at least from our perspective, that he's the most qualified candidate. But when we look at this point of transition of power, there's a, a central idea that comes up. That when a person of God dies or steps out, nothing of God dies. You know, sometimes we... We're worried, I'll use that term, when a leader steps out or dies. So, for example, if you think in the last 50 years, three of the most prominent leaders, C.S. Lewis, and then the new C.S. Lewis, Charles Colson, and then Billy Graham, three giants of the faith, three people that have deeply impacted people and still do all died. C.S. Lewis, I think, in 1963. Billy Graham, what, maybe five years ago. And I'm guessing that when those three guys died, there was a number of people that said, oh no, what are we going to do now? They're dead. But when they died, everything the Lord did through them did not go to pieces. Because when a person of God dies or steps out, nothing of God dies. And every one of us will eventually leave whatever role we're in, maybe whatever business we're in, whatever position we're in, whatever ministry we're in. And like I said, it will come one day for me, it will come one day for every one of you. But God's work will continue to flourish because he's in charge. In verses 15 to 17, we notice that when it's time for this new leader to be appointed, Moses doesn't try to handpick the person himself and say, you know, it's got to be Joshua. It's got to be him because this is my guy. Instead, he asks God to appoint the right one. And certainly he has a hand in mentoring and developing Joshua, but he didn't insist on his way. But he stepped back and he let God choose. 
And you know, if you're in that place, whatever role you are in in life, it's very difficult not to dabble in the selection of a new leader inappropriately. Especially if you've been the leader or in a particular role for a long period of time. And we know that he has been the leader of Israel, telling them when to come in and to go out, as the text said, for more than 40 years. Very difficult to step back. The temptation for him would have been to try and keep control. And to steer the situation in a certain way. And I've seen the problems that can cause. And Moses models for us this very gracious transition. He harbors no bitterness. He's not primarily concerned with himself, but with the needs of the people. They desperately need a shepherd because they are just sheep that kind of just wander around aimlessly. And God answers in verses 18 and 19 and 22 and 23. And Moses again humbles himself and he takes the steps to put God's replacement officially and publicly in place. So they do it in front of all the leadership and in front of the people with Eleazar the priest. And he lays hands on Joshua and he says now, the leadership is changing, follow him. And I don't know what your situation is in life, but when God chooses someone to replace you, what will our attitude be? He supports them both publicly and privately, and this is the call he has for us as God puts the new person into our role. And this is tough, especially when they start to do things differently than how you do it. When I was 22, Debbie and I had been married for four months. And we were fresh off the boat from school. You know, the ink still hadn't dried on my bachelor's degree. I'd gotten licensed to be a pastor. I'd been speaking in front of groups since I was 16 years old, preaching. But I was heading out to take my first church, Debbie and I, in the little town of Cornac, Saskatchewan. And uh, we were the only ones, we were the only evangelical Bible-believing church in that whole community. And we were, I was the only pastor there. And... We go to the church, and it so happened that the previous pastor, Dick Ferguson, was about 50 years of age, and he was still there. He was old enough to be my dad. Now, normally, in fact, I think I signed a paper to this effect one day. When a pastor resigns, you're expected to leave the church, and if at all possible, you're expected to leave the community. But in this case, because we were the only evangelical church in town, Dick Ferguson and his family stayed with us for the first year in our church. And so needless to say, here's this guy that's old enough to be my dad. I was a little nervous about this. I'm extremely wet behind the ears, young enough to be his son. And, you know, kind of ringing in the back of my mind, will Dick be supportive 
or will he be undermining when I start to do things differently than him? Because I will. And I learned right away what his attitude would be the very first Sunday. The very first Sunday, and I'll never forget this. We were sitting in the little fellowship room of that church in an adult Sunday school class. And Debbie and I were sitting here, and he was sitting there, and Ken was leading this class. And Ken got up as the class began, and he said, I think we should sing a song as we get started uh, this class. And he said, Pastor Ferguson, would you come and lead the song? And here's what Dick said. Dick said, no, I won't. Why don't you ask Pastor Dixon's wife, Debbie, to come and lead the song? That was a good day for Dick. He did a very honorable thing. And he sent a very clear message, I'm no longer the leader, and Scott is your new leader. And it was a pleasure to have him in the congregation that year, before they moved. When it comes time for you to be replaced in whatever role that is, how will you handle that? Something else we notice is that when God appoints, he approves. And when God appoints someone and he does this with Joshua and commissions them to the ministry, they'll find themselves in their work blessed. And so Moses lays hands on him, he prays for him, and he commissions him to the work. And Joshua is filled with the Spirit and begins to serve. We need to not just publicly and privately support these whoever takes our role, but we need to pray and work for their success. Do we pray for those that God has placed in leadership over us? Are we supportive? Especially when it doesn't always go the way we think it should. Man, this one hits me. Because I do some leadership stuff here in other places, and the people I report to in other places, they don't always do it exactly the way I would. But I'm called on to support and to lead. I speak to them, but support and pray. Let's see how the story ends. Let's turn over one more book to Deuteronomy, the fifth book, the last book of what's called the Pentateuch. The fifth book, Deuteronomy chapter 34. And we'll see how the story ends. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. Then the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan. Dan is in the north part of Israel. All of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, the Negev and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I will let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, 
as the Lord had said, he buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died. Yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. The Lord, the Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever showed, shown rather the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. 17 messages ago, like I said, back in April actually, when we started this. I started this series by saying this to you. 15 years ago, I found myself standing on Mount Nebo in the country of Jordan, modern-day Jordan, just south of the capital city of Amman. The location, relatively speaking, pictured in the text I just wrote to you. And you can see from the couple of pictures that I took that day, I took a few, but it wasn't such a clear day that day. The first picture that's on the screen behind me is a picture of a map they have there. And then there's a picture of the landscape. And you can see on the map as you look, I remember standing there, kind of turned like this a little bit, and there's Jericho in that direction the mountains of Gilboa, the Mount of Olives, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, the Herodian, the Dead Sea, it's a little closer, Hebron. And it's all laid out in the distance. And I remember standing there, and to be honest, I had a lot of emotion that day because you know, I've read this story that we've walked through many times. And I thought to myself, this is the view that Moses had standing on Mount Nebo just before he died. And I thought about his life. And I'm guessing Moses probably stood in that location for a long time thinking about all that had happened in his life in the last 120 years. And all that didn't happen but was supposed to. And it was a lifetime full of opportunities. There was times when he said yes to God and times when he was reluctant or he didn't really say a healthy yes. There was times when the Israelites said yes and sadly many times when they said no. And most of them, including Moses, missed out on the promised land because of their besetting sin. And I mean that sin that just kept coming up over and over again in their life. And friends, right now we are journeying through very interesting times. I believe times when God is presenting significant opportunities to the followers of Jesus Christ. Opportunities to shine for Jesus in a 
increasingly broken and deeply disillusioned world. You get out there and talk to them, they're deeply disillusioned. And you know, I wish I could say that the church in North America is knocking it out of the park right now, but we're really not. You read about this stuff at all or look around with your eyes open, we're not doing a great job right now. And I believe Satan is attacking the church. I think he's laughing his head off about some of this stuff. He's attacking the church in the sense of many of us are showing a lack of grace to one another. That many of us have moved to kind of a position of idle hands in this time, where we've kind of moved out of servant mode into more selfish mode, not using our spiritual gifts. And that there's great attacks on unity right now. And as we've talked about this story, I've been asking the question, how are we going to respond? Will we step into those opportunities and see God do incredible things, or will we dissolve, sadly, like the children of Israel did, into murmuring and complaining? Will we respond with grace? The people, not just the people that agree with us on whatever the issue of the day is, but especially with the people that don't agree with us. And probably never will. But will we respond with grace? One day, we are all going to stand on our own personal Mount Nebo. One day, we're going to look back. And what will we see?